Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And he swings, hits it high, and deep, and gone! Still going back! Yeah! Out of here! Welcome to the big leagues! Deep to center field, and it is gone! Wow, his first big league swing is going to be a grand slam home run. Swing and drive! Welcome back to The Call Up, your go-to podcast on the future stars of Major League Baseball. We're talking St. Louis Cardinals top prospects today on this episode. I'm Aram Layton. He's Jack McMullen. Jack, this is a system that kind of was frustrating for me to rank in some ways just because there's a lot of players that are interchangeable. So I feel like a lot of times you can tier it pretty easily. You know who the tier one guys are. Maybe there's a little bit of bleeding between the tier, the end of tier one and the beginning of tier two. But usually you can have a pretty clean, definitive tier in each kind of spot. It was harder for me to, to tier these guys, let alone just rank them in order because we graduate Mason Wynn. I want to make that clear too, by the way. 100 plate appearances, you're gone. We don't we don't want to rank you anymore. See ya. So from, from that lens, he's gone. And, and that was like the one clear-cut guy on his own. So it's a little bit of an interesting mix of names that I do think you could justify shuffling a little bit one way or another. I had been pinging you late at night on a bunch of different fronts, just like stressed out about it. But I think that's how the Cardinals like it. Like they want a lot of high floor, specifically with the arms, high floor arms that are high probability back into the rotation guys. But it's really annoying when you got to rank those guys against each other. I wasn't going to do it because I have journalistic integrity, but I was thinking about copy and pasting the description for each of the names to watch because they are the same guy. Uh, Having said that, they're a good guy. They have the best names to watch of any system that we've done yet, but they have the worst top five of any system we've done yet. I I think that's pretty fair to say. I I think that is fair to say. And we will do worse. Don't worry. It's not a a full-on slide of the Cardinals. Worse is coming. The White Sox are coming. Yeah, we're good. (laughs) Yeah. And Wynn graduating by our standards obviously changes things. But part of the reason why I like doing that is, look, Wynn had 130 whatever plate appearances at the big league level. Uh, that's a guy that's going to be, again, right at the big leagues again. And within the first week of the season, he's going to graduate off of lists, and then lists are naturally going to be outdated. So I just that that whole approach just never resonated with me. And I'd rather have more fresh names than tell you that Mason Wynn is the number one prospect in the in the Cardinal system. You knew that already. He's very good despite the struggles. He would have been far and away number one. He would have been a top 
20, top 15, maybe even prospects in the game. Before I forget, though, Jack, we should also, before we get into these Cardinals prospects, talk about a nice little fun prospect swap and Mm -hmm. a good one for multiple reasons. I I thought you canceled talking about Michael Bush on this show. I thought you said you were I done did until I did until he got moved. But also okay. now we can talk about Michael Bush, the big leaguer, instead of Michael Bush. When does he ever play? Is he going to get traded? Blah blah blah. But I'm also excited to talk about some of the players going in the other direction. So real quick before we get into the Cardinals' top prospects. So sorry if you came here just for that. But before we get <laughs> here's to the that, Cubs. Here's, here's your arch nemesis. <laughs> they they got to know who they're facing. They got to know what's going on. Michael Bush heads over from the Dodgers to the Cubs. He's probably going to play first. That's what the reports seem to be. I don't think that's been decided yet. I think they're going to see what he's what he can do. Yeah. He played a lot more third this past year, did Bush. Uh, in AAA, he's only played about 17 games at first base as a pro. I obviously am biased, Mervis, friend of the program. I hope he gets every opportunity at first base. But you, you can't be upset if you're a Cubs fan with more options. And Bush has really just absolutely raked at every stop. Can play third if they need it because they do also still have an opening there. And can plug in, you know, if you ever have an emergency at second base. Going the other way is Jackson Ferris left-handed pitching prospect who slotted in at number 10 in the Cubs system that we just talked about a couple weeks ago, and that's a good Cubs system. He instantly becomes the Dodgers' top left-handed pitching prospect, overtaking Maddox Bruns. And then you also get Zaire Hope, who we talked about, right? It was a a guy that I I mentioned when we were doing the live breakdown. Shoot, we forgot Hope. He's super interesting. Let's add him in here. I, I can't believe we almost forgot him. And we're talking about the EVs that he's put up the elite speed and how he's a really fascinating name to watch as an outfielder that was drafted in the 11th round. And now there's a reason why the Dodgers ID'd him and he's going over there to LA. So they get two really high upside pieces, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a second in exchange for Bush. Yanti Almonte also slots into the bullpen, had a down year last year, but I think Bush is, is obviously the key here. You're trading volatility and upside for proximity and, you know, I think a, a, a lower ceiling, but a really good chance at being able to help your big league team this year and, and beyond. Which is why I liked it for both sides. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, like, I'm not into trade grades immediately, but I saw this and I was like, this is mutually beneficial. Um, I'm not going to pick a winner. I think I lean Cubs with what they're trying to do right now, I guess. But the Dodgers needed to clear 40 minute space anyways. Almonte was surplus. I do like the Almonte get just from a big league perspective on the minor league show that we have. But um, Adbert Alzali, who did have prospect intrigue is recently is what, 2020, 2021. Mm-hmm. Alzali is a legit major league closer. They needed a setup guy in front of Alzali and they got it in Yancy Almonte. Um, my initial reaction on the Dodgers front was, okay, Andrew Friedman probably had a choice to make, and it was who's going to be your high floor, maybe lower ceiling prospect guy that's going to sit on your bench or slot it in a couple of positions. Is it going to be Michael Bush or is it going to be Miguel Vargas? Mm -hmm. And this felt like the Dodgers chose Miguel Vargas. Having said that, both would be massive trade pieces, and that's what the Cubs just got. My initial reaction on the Cubs side was, okay, you made things way cheaper for yourself at one of the corner infield spots. Is it third base and you save nine figures on Matt Chapman? 
or is it first base and you save yourself an external option of Reese Hoskins or the unknown with like a second year audition for Mervis or something else like that? It felt like they wanted to upgrade at both corners. Yep. They upgraded at one of them. We just don't know which one yet. My initial thought was for, it was third base and it was going to be mm-hmm. Bush at third, Dansby at short, Horner at second, and maybe you sign Hoskins at first or Mervis at first. And I really like that. If it turns into Bush at first, Horner at second, Dansby at short, Matt Chapman at third, I still really like it. Yeah. And and I think it gives them those options, like you said. So I think depending on how the offseason shakes out could ultimately to decide where Bush goes. Cause I do think that it could be one way or another, depending on what kind of gets presented to them and, and what kind of opportunities they have. And maybe Mervis falls out in spring training uh, and, and has a nice start. And then all of a sudden you say, okay, Michael slide over to, to third base. The interesting thing with Michael Bush is like, he's gotten a lot better since he's been drafted in terms of the footwork and, and just the ability to play defense, but the range isn't good. What has yeah. come along though is, is he makes the routine plays. The arm is strong enough. DRS probably won't hate him nearly as much as OAA will in terms of outs above average. So that'll probably dock him a little bit more. But again, you know, it's just nice to have a corner guy. They needed that, you know, and he can play in either corner. And at 26 years old, it's about time that Bush gets the opportunity. Real quick on Ferris. uh, It's a project, right? But uh, but a much better project than than Bruns. I think he's just further along. I think he's more polished. I think that the secondaries uh, have a better chance at this point. And so that's exactly what the Dodgers wanted. And they ID two guys. They were probably on in the in the draft trail, right? And we're talking about 2022 and 2023 draftees, two guys that they probably were on, don't end up drafting, have plenty of familiarity with, and now snag them very early in their development. So if you're going to go get two, two prospects for a prospect and a reliever, have it be as much upside as possible. And if they're far away, you want to maximize that upside. They did just that. These are two arms that, you know, if it all works out for Ferris or two players, if it all works out for Ferris, middle rotation arm from the left side, if it all works out for Hope, I don't even know what that looks like. That could be really, really fun. So that's what the Dodgers wanted. So I don't know much about Zaire Hope. Let me proceed what I'm about to say with that. But the Dodgers took one of the more raw speed and juice guys that like I've seen at the high A level and turned him into a four and a half win player this past year in James Altman. And that was development alone. So what happens when you get your hands on an 18-year-old speed and juice guy? In four years, he might be James Altman. <laughs> you never know. He could even never be better. Uh, or he could flame out in double A. And that's why these trades are so fascinating and can you know, really work out for either side or both. So it'll be fun to see. We're here to talk about the Cardinals prospects, though. So let's jump into it like we always do. If you're following along on YouTube, we'll take care of it for you. It's on our screen. If you are listening, link is in the episode description. Jack, take us through the alphabetically ordered names to watch. Important, not in order of preference. I will tell you who uh, my number 16 is, though, when I get there. Yeah, I think it's clear, Uh, actually, for me. Yeah, it's pretty clear for me. Real quick, um, you know that bright orange futon that I have in my apartment? Yeah. I lost my baseball for a long time, and I was looking under that futon, and I found my baseball. So when we get to the pitching guys in the top 15, I can walk you through whatever. You'd really show show all the grips. Exactly. Um, All right. First one is Joshua Baez, 20 years old, just turned 20 years old. He was not that good this past year in low A, but he had a really strong complex year before that, and he's 6'4", 220. You're betting on the build, and you're betting on the juice showing up. He sneaky stole 30 bags, but he whiffed all the time. 34% K rate this past year. 
Uh, Ian Bedell starts a string of pitchers that are pretty much the exact same. Bedell was really good in high A this year. 96 innings, a two and a half ERA, 106 punch outs. He's 24 years old and he just dominated high A. We need to see him do it at the upper levels as a 25-year-old in order to really consider this like a prospect. But it certainly is a name to watch because he could end up being a big leaguer. Uh, Your favorite player in mind, Moises Gomez, led minor league baseball in homers in 2022. That was good because he had 39 of them. Yes, he had a 35% K rate, but you can stomach that with 39 homers. It's harder to stomach 30 homers and a 35% K rate and a really low batting average, like and a really low OBP. There, there were enough detractors and a lack of defensive ability really anywhere. It seems like he's a DH, but the guy hit 39 homers and followed it up with a 30 homer season in AAA. Yeah, so we're going to pay attention to that guy still always, but I, I think, think I'll so. pay attention to him no matter what, no matter where he's playing. But yeah, I mean, I think Luke and Baker is probably still the better version of, of, of this at the end of the day. I think so. Um, Pete Hansen was kind of the classic pitchability lefty at Texas. And I think a lot of people liked him at Texas because he was that. And he was the classic Friday night guy in the Big 12 that was going to go seven innings for the Texas Longhorns, who are an elite brand in college baseball. He does not have any pitch that stands out data wise. Like he doesn't have a pitch that you point to and it's like, that's a big league pitch. But his blend can possibly have him climb level by level to the point where he does make a debut at some point. Adam Klofenstein, he was the return. They nailed this deadline, by the way. Should we take a moment and acknowledge that? Yeah, that that's like one of the biggest things I want I wanted to mention too is like if they didn't do what they did in the deadline, like with Mason when graduated, this is one of the weaker systems in baseball. Nailing the deadline is almost like I think improved the system by 50%. Maybe more I mean, than that. I mean, like several of their top prospects are guys that they acquired in trades. And it's not like they traded a bunch of superstars. They just did really well. So it's a no. good observation. And Jordan Montgomery looks like an $100 million pitcher this offseason with sure. where the pitching market is at. But you got Sajazi and TK Roby, who we're going to talk about like near the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. That's how mm-hmm. good they are. But Kloffenstein was the return for Jordan Hicks, a guy that was kind of a sitting duck there. And Kloffenstein had a great year after two really bad years to start mm-hmm. off his minor league tenure. Um, he posted an ERA in the low threes. Opponents hit under 230 against him. And he was kind of a horse. He threw nearly 130 innings this past year. Uh, another horse has yet to throw a pitch in professional baseball. Quinn Matthews went viral for throwing 156 pitches in a game in the Super Regional in Palo Alto against Texas. Um, four-year guy at Stanford. If he figured out a way to like do that, I think he'll figure out a way to get to AAA at least. Um, and I'm curious to see what it looks like in the minor leagues. He's got a crazy good changeup. The fastball sits like 90. So I just wonder if it's going to work out. I'm glad they just told him, hey, dude, let's like not throw for a little bit here. Yeah. Like, let's, let's, let's just let's just pump the brakes, relax, rest that arm up. Ridiculous that he threw that many pitches. I understand that he wanted to empty the tank. Uh, any player is going to do that. Uh, good on the Cardinals for uh, slowing him down there. Yeah, I'm interested to see, you know, if, if he can be another one of those pitchability guys that can just get out. Yeah. Um, Bryson Mott's kind of a different build when it comes to lefty, aside from Quinn Matthews. Bryson Mott's second round pick has a good riding fastball and a good slider. He's a two pitch guy, though. It worked. University of San Diego, 129 punch outs, 22 walks. He was nasty. This past year, punched out 115 and 104 innings in low A. He's 22. 
want to see him in high A and double A. Edwin Nunez is 21 years old and he throws a hundred. Like he's a reliever already. Yeah, like it's it's electric. It is. It's not Abner Uribe, but if you're if you're 21 and you throw a hundred, you're a name to watch. And it's like that. It's that loose, short, athletic 100 that just it just looks like his arms just going so fast that it just jumps out of his hand with some good arm side run. He's going to be a big league reliever. I, I, I have little doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, two more guys. Zach Showalter, right hander, was the return in a one for one swap. Uh, for Jack Flaherty from Baltimore. Showalter has hardly no innings under his belt in professional baseball, 31 and a third, I want to say. He's going to turn 20 in like a week or two. Um, But, you know, first 31 innings of his professional career were solid. Um, And then for me, the clear-cut number 16 prospect in this system is Max Ratchet, right-hander in high A. Is that who you had to? Yeah, that was very clear for me. Uh, Mm -hmm. Southern California kid, uh, sixth round pick out of UCLA. How does this guy fall to the sixth round? He was excellent. Had an ERA in the low threes, walked just about two guys per nine in 85 innings in his draft year. This past year, 248 ERA in 123 innings, 123 punch outs, 27 walks. He's 22 He's probably going to be in double A to open the year. He'll probably end the year in triple A. I'm betting on this guy to be a big leaguer and like for a decent bit of time, he's got back end starter type shit. Yeah, he does, which is which is interesting. You know, I, the only reason he didn't quite crack the top 15 when we'll get into the top 15 is uh, just some of the underlying stuff. I want to see if it you know continues to translate you know, at the double A level, because, yeah, you know, I don't think anything quite jumps off the page when you look at the, the stuff in a vacuum. But I think he also could be just one of those guys that gets a little bit more out of his stuff. So I just want to see it at the double A level before he cracks that, uh, you know, that top 15 spot, especially as a more of a fly ball guy and a fastball that operates, you know, more in the 92, 93 range, but it does seem to just get on guys quicker. It does seem to just have some carry to it and, and, and miss barrels. So I'm very fascinated to see what he's going to do at double A. And I do think that this is kind of that next high floor righty that could rise up the ranks here in this Cardinals system. Jumping right into the top 15. We'll start with number 15, Jimmy Crooks catcher who I actually got the chance to see in the Arizona fall league. And it was funny because every time I saw Jimmy Crooks, he did well. And then I looked at the Arizona fall league stats and they were, they they were not good. So I was like, Whoa, it didn't seem like he, uh, he was struggling like that. I think I saw almost all of his hits then in the Arizona fall league, but Crooks cracks the top 15 because of what he's done defensively. This guy has turned into a really solid defender behind the dish, which is really important, obviously, as, as a catcher. Offensively, there's some there's some concern for sure. Uh, he cannot really hit breaking balls well, but he doesn't miss fastballs. He actually has pretty insane numbers against fastballs. He had over 350 against heaters in high A this past season, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, also really struggled against secondary sitting 170 against all other pitches. So that part is a little bit concerning. And then you look at the platoon splits, 850 OPS against right-handed pitching, 570 OPS against Southpaws. But if you are an above average defender, a left-handed hitter, and you can just hit fastballs, you're at least a backup catcher at the big league level. I, I think he's kind of a tweener, which those are, those end up being the guys who blossom at like 27, 28 and end up being starters. I wouldn't be surprised if, Jimmy Crooks can be that. Uh, I get it really just comes down to whether he's going to hit enough because the power is fringy as well. So 
if the hit tool can just at least be fringy instead of below average, like I see it, you, you got an average catcher here. And I mean, they rostered Andrew Kisner for what, six years behind mm-hmm. Yadier Molina? Like they clearly don't care about offensive prowess with the stick. They tried caring about it and they ended up benching that guy slash moving him to a DH for two weeks this past year. And and the other catcher that we're going to talk about, like certainly has the offensive prowess and he's getting better defensively, but it seems like the Cardinals, obviously they have maybe the greatest defensive catcher of all time that just retired, but like Kisner was there because of his ability to handle his staff. Mm -hmm. So you think if there's one organization that will give a guy like this the chance that continues to get better and continues to get better defensively. It might be the team that employed Andrew Kisner and Yadier Molina at the same time. And they sent him to the AFL for a reason, right? I mean, they, yeah. they definitely are intrigued by what he's doing to see the arm get better, to see the way he moves behind the dish, continue to get better. Again, it's, it's, it's an above average defensive profile throughout 28% of base dealers as well at the high A level last year. So I'm crooks might not hit much in double A. I'm interested to see how that looks, but with the above average glove, High probability big leaguer. Uh, and you, know, you never know, could boss him into a starter. And, and boy, do I have the walk up song for him. Oh, I know, right? I've, I've thought about the same thing. I hope yeah. he rolls with that. I, I, hope, I don't I know hope if he, he does. Will. I don't know. High probability big leaguer is going to be the name of, of the game here. Like, this is all we're going to. If I yeah. say it a lot, I'm sorry, but it just is like it is what most of these players are. So it leads us right into number 14. And it just seems like that's the Cardinals type, right? Like they, they don't like to be too risky or too volatile, but every once in a while, then they mix in some volatility, which we'll get to. But number 14 is Michael McGreevy, right-handed pitching prospect who finished the year in triple a, got to fix that uh, (laughs) under the name there. I'm just looking at the, the, we just have weight, not height, but six, five, 215 pound righty who the, the stuff is not great. Um, it's, it's finesse overall 18th overall pick. I know a guy that probably was one of your favorite guys to watch probably, uh, in his, his final collegiate season, just because I know you love the refreshing nature of athleticism and pouring in strikes on the mound. And that's exactly what McGreevy does and provides, but it's a fringy fastball. It's an above average slider. It's an average changeup. And then it's all kind of put together by well above average command. You're hoping for a ground ball getting five starter. But there is something to be said about the fact that he's thrown 300 innings roughly over the last two professional seasons. And I just see I see a number five starter innings eater type here that, you know, you can use any team could use. Yes. So what turns me off about McGreevy is there were times where he punched out one guy in a start and then he punched out nine guys in a start. And then he would go like two, three starts in a row where he would punch out two guys in a start and then he would punch out eight in a start. The inconsistency was kind of weird. And I called a start in Indy where he threw into the seventh. He threw 100 pitches. The line was six and two thirds, eight hits. One earned run, two walks, one strikeout. And it was a tightrope act for six and two-thirds innings. And the tightrope act in AAA does worry me a little bit, but it's also a testament to who that guy is. Like at Santa Barbara, he he didn't need to tightrope because he was better than like the college competition that he was seeing. But when you get to AAA, the fact that you can get through, you know, pretty much seven innings 
with one earned run and you only punch out one guy, you're not missing bats at all. That's kind of a testament to him having hitters on their heels. So yeah, they're putting it in play. Yeah. They're dropping like dink and dunk base hits into the shallow parts of the outfield. They just weren't touching home plate. And that is like what some people were raised on when you come to pitch. Yeah. And I just, I wonder if you can do it at the big league level, the same way. Yeah. And I think the the Cardinals do too. And I think the Cardinals were hoping the stuff would be a little bit better. Because he, he is big, and, and I do wish that his his fastball was released a little bit higher. Because when you have that sinking fastball, it's just better from a higher release. I think it would play up a little bit better. But he still does get a ton of ground balls, uh, you know, overall with the fastball. Like, he does pick up plenty of, of ground balls. So that does help. Uh, and, and then, again, the slider is is enough of a whiff pitch for him to mix in there. And he'll try to buzz up a four-seamer here and there. And I think that's the difference of when you see – the swing and miss, how much confidence does he have in sneaking that four seamer at the top of the zone? Uh, and I think sometimes he, he he's worried about that for obvious reasons. Cause it's 92 and it's, you know, it's not that great, but when you're working everything down, breaking downward and you change the eye level, you can get some more whiff there. And I also think a big, a big part of that is the change up uh, at some starts. It was on some starts. It wasn't when it was on, he's able to get a lot more swing and miss, especially against left-handed heavy lineups. I think that's also part of it is when he's facing you know, left-handed heavy lineups and the changeup's not there. It's going to be really hard to get strikeouts because his best pitch is his slider, I think, by by a good margin. But McGreevy, I think, will be up at the big league level at some point this year if they need a spot start. And, you know, it could be that that innings eater, long relief at the very least. And I just I, – I, he's a big leaguer in some capacity. Yes. Um, my main concern with the St. Louis Cardinals is, like, where's the spot start opportunity from a prospect front? Because, like – they just signed Lance Lynn, who's going to start every fifth day. Like, is it going to be good? Not all the time, but he's going to start every fifth day. Kyle Gibson, every fifth day. Sonny, every fifth day. Michaelis, every fifth day. Like, you run out of places to plug prospects in. Yeah, but you never know. <laughs> you yeah. never know with the way these these pitching staffs can just fall apart so quickly, unfortunately, with injury. But, yeah, for now, it doesn't seem like he has a a very clean path to, to getting an opportunity at the beginning of the year, but. Over the course of a season, I'm sure I'm sure he'll, he'll get an opportunity one way or another, or it'll be a trade piece. Yeah. Number 13 was a trade piece. Part of that Jack Flaherty deal uh, over from Baltimore heading to St. Louis, Cesar Prieto infielder who finished the year in AAA. And I mean, this is a guy that's very blocked because he's a utility piece that makes a lot of contact. And that's exactly what they have a million of, <laughs> I yeah. feel like. but. You know, you, you go get the best player you can get in a deal, and and that's what they they did here, and getting a guy that was even more blocked probably in Baltimore. Uh, Prieto is probably going to be somebody that it, again, if they if they need help, like he's probably one of the first options in the infield who can play second base, can play third base, can play shortstop in an absolute emergency. But it's all about the hit tool. It's above average, almost a plus hit tool. He's hit 300 as a pro with a 12% strikeout rate. And, and this is something that's gone back to his days in Cuba. He defected from Cuba in 2021, signing for $650,000. And it's it, the upside's obviously very limited, but you're going to get plenty of contact. You're going to get a very aggressive approach, which holds him back some chase rate over 35%. You're going to get below average power, but ability to play multiple spots in the infield, left handed bat great contact rates. It's a big leaguer. Yes. Watching him play. Are you at all shocked that he pumps out 10 homers? Like I watch that guy play and I'm like, Oh, you're five homers a year. And maybe that's just how the game 
has changed. Like five homer guys have become 10 homer guys in the last five, seven years. But I think 10 homers is pretty solid. And he pumped out 11 in 22 yeah. and 10 in 23. Yeah, that part's surprising. I mean, if he can do that at the big league level, then all of a sudden he could almost, you know, wiggle his way into a, a more prominent role. But yeah. I, I don't know if that happens at the big league level the same way. I think it could be more of the the five to eight range, but you never know. And that could help a lot for his overall outlook. Yeah. Number 12, recently drafted Travis Honeyman. Great name. Third round pick in 2023. Outfielder from Boston College. So Honeyman is interesting because he, he battled a shoulder issue in his junior season. He never really tapped into too much power at, at the collegiate level of Boston College. But he has flashed some poolside juice. He's shown the ability to put bat on ball. There's some moving parts. It's a big leg kick, a barrel tip, all that good stuff. But he repeats it all well because he's a good athlete. He's an above average runner. He's an above average arm. He has really good tools, but he's not really translated those into production yet at, at, at the collegiate level. That said, he put together a really good summer on the Cape. And that was really encouraging because this is a guy that I don't think had ever hit more than like six, six, seven home runs. It was 12 home runs and 92 contests at Boston College. But then with Wood on the Cape, four homers in like 24 games. So that's obviously encouraging. And we've seen flashes of, of decent EVs up to 109, 110. He could be a really fun player, but I think a big like a, a big aspect of his profile being what you know you want it to be is him sticking in center. He has the speed, he has the arm, but his reads and routes were not great. So that's something that really needs to, to come along. Either the bat's going to have to really make a leap, both hit tool wise and tapping into more power in games, or he sticks in center field, which really takes some pressure off of the bat. What I'm nervous about is he moves to a corner. Maybe the bat improves, but it doesn't improve enough. And now you're like in this, no man's land of a profile, if that makes sense. So I'm really hoping that he can stick in center field. He has the goods too. Uh, and I'm interested to see, you know, what his pro debut looks like. It uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm going to print the shirts at some point. College stats matter, especially in like the, the high major conferences. Like I think SEC stats, big 12 stats, ACC stats matter. Maybe in the Pac-12, not so much in the big 10, but like if you pump out an 1100 OPS, I think that you can produce offensively in the minor leagues. Will it translate to big league success? We don't know, but like, I think you can jump in and immediately perform really well in high A. Honeyman was really good at BC, but he was never great. Like the OPS in college was a career 883. That's docked by a couple of games his freshman year. His sophomore year OPS was 908. His junior year OPS was 917. So like, my thought there is, all right, like you were good. You were an efficient base dealer. You hit a couple homers. You didn't strike out much, but you also didn't walk much. Like, There's not one number that you point to on the stat sheet. It's like, you're for sure a big leaguer. Like Sometimes it's the homer number. Sometimes it's even the batting average number. A lot of times it's the OPS number. Here, there really wasn't a number. Yep. That's and it's funny. So I, I sent a text to Pete Flaherty of Baseball America, who you know yeah. we had on on to talk about the draft recently. Um, and he's as good as they come when it comes to you know getting everybody prepared and everything you need to know about MLB drafts. Pete Flaherty's the guy. You should follow him on Twitter. But I know that this is his domain specifically, right? Boston College guys. I mean, right. he was on South Freelick before I think South Freelick's parents even knew 
that he was going to be a big league piece. Like he's specifically great at the draft, but specifically, specifically great, you know, in, in the Northeast and specifically in the Boston area where he cooks. So I asked him about Honeyman and he likes him a lot because he kind of saw something similar where it's like, yes, the production doesn't imply that he has, you know, five potentially solid tools, but he has five potentially solid tools. And if it all comes together there, you get a really good player. So when it comes to guys outside of the top 10, especially in a system like the Cardinals, I think Honeyman's got as much of the upside as, as really anyone you're going to find here. And talking Bowman draft here, the way we're going to do it, we're not going to just do one Bowman draft segment. What we're going to do is talk about the players that are in Bowman draft in this top prospect list for the Cardinals. I would be very interested in buying a Cardinal spot in a break because you have Chase Davis, who we're going to get to, who's obviously the, the, Number one, Chase, if you're a Cardinals fan or you're, you're, you know, in a Cardinal spot for a break. But I always love when the fallback option isn't like a damn it. Why? I don't want this guy because you know how it works, man. You buy a spot in a break or whatever it may be. You if you pull a sick auto, it's always of the third round pick and it'll be the one number to 25. Right. That's always how it works. But if that happens with this instance, I'm thrilled pulling a Travis Honeyman because of what he's capable of, because of what he can be, uh, which is, you know, I, I could see an above average hit tool. I can see at least average power, probably closer to average power, though. I can see above average run. And if he's doing that in center field, then all of a sudden you have an above average regular. He was a really hard guy for me to put a future value on because I think so much can change over, you know, this next year. But Honeyman's a guy that I'm happily looking for in Bowman draft outside of the first round. I know we did that episode of like top prospects outside of the first round. Didn't have enough on Honeyman, but now doing this um, definitely a name I'd be happy to pull in Bowman draft. A hundred percent. I'm trying to almost like comp what his production could be to another guy's production. And I'm not trying to find like an exact player comp, but I, I almost settled on what the Cardinals we're hoping they would get from Dylan Carlson to a slightly lesser degree where Carlson was supposed to, you know, hit like hit for batting titles, right? Like he was supposed to be that guy and he was a top 20 prospect in baseball. Honeyman's not going to be that guy, but he's like, they're hoping he can be a good center fielder that can flirt with 300 at his best pump out 10 homers. Like that's, that's a valuable card. I think. And, and I think he can pump out more than that. If he taps into it consistently, like he does have the raw power especially to the pull side to hit 15 or maybe more than that so the question kind of is does he make the leap with the hit tool does he make the leap with the power maybe a little bit of both and can he stick in center to be a really good card that you really want he probably has to do all of those but he's a guy that has a chance to do all of those and we're talking about cards that you know you're not even chasing that you back into i I wouldn't be pissed if i pulled a a travis honeyman card so uh, just another name that I, i do think could make a big leap going into uh, the 2024 season, as I even mentioned that, you know, in, in the write up there. So number 11. And so we talk about themes, dude, let's just point out every single guy that was, that was acquired at the deadline. <laughs> yeah. Sam Roberts and Sam, look, we, we joked about it because he was sent to the, uh, to the futures game uh, by, by the, the blue Jays. And it was funny. I was talking to somebody uh, that, you know, is, is, is relatively plugged into to these kinds of things. And, I thought it was a little conspiracy theorist from him to to say this, but now like looking at it, it's kind of funny. Um, he felt like some of the teams that didn't really have someone in particular that they wanted to send to the, you know, or, or couldn't send their top prospect to the futures game. They sent guys that they wanted to trade um, and, or, or that they were like willing to move. And I, I was like, yeah, yeah, maybe probably not. I don't know. And then you look at some of the guys and they're like, 
this guy ended up getting and he moved. This guy ended up getting moved. And Reverse is, is, is another example of a guy that ended up getting moved. And Reverse sent over in that Jordan Hicks package alongside Kloffenstein. Hmm. And Reverse is the better piece here. Obviously, we have him ranked higher. Problem with Reverse is he – and I, am I saying it right? Is it Reverse or is it Reversey? Reverse. Reverse. Okay, that's what I thought. I was listening to some some clips. I was watching pitches, and I thought I saw that pronounced or heard that pronounced once, and I was like, "Oh Wait. no!" Okay, hold on. Now I see Reversa, 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 yeah, Sem, Sem Reversa. All right, let's that's go with it. Cool. So Sem Reversa, the fastball is not good, and we've talked about this in the past. Like, it is a fringy fastball. It's low nineties, but it's just it's it's flat. It's straight. It gets hit hard. Opponents had an OPS over a thousand against his fastball last year. But, but his secondaries are good. Like he has two above average secondaries and a good feel for them. Curveball above average, change up above average, landed both for a strike over 60% of the time. Mixes in a slider is kind of a taste breaker. It seems like every start he is working to mask his fastball, which is difficult. It's hard to, to get jazzed up about guys like that. But when opponents have a 580 OPS against secondaries, it's a little bit easier to to you know see it. Maybe this is a guy that needs to lean into more of just a you know it's a sinker and and just pitch to contact because the four seamer is just getting pillaged, like it's just getting destroyed. So I, it, that's the one thing though is like he closed out four really good starts after the trade. He went he was immediately promoted to Triple A. He went from Double A, you know, New Hampshire with 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 the Blue Jays to Triple A. Once he gets traded to the Cardinals, first start was terrible. And then settled in and closed out with four really solid starts. So if he can just mask that fastball or just get the fastball to the point where he can just get ground balls, the changeup and curveball are a good enough combination. And he's just got a field of pitch that I think would be good enough to be a number five starter. So I love watching the changeup from his slot. It is a very aesthetically pleasing pitch because it's so over the top. And it, with it being that over the top, it almost feels like the changeup is diving more than it may on like a data standpoint. Yeah, it it, it almost just feels like it's drifting like low and away in mm-hmm. right on left matchups and, and maybe even like drifting in towards the shin of a right handed hitter. And I think that pitch can be really good from that slot. So I think that curveball can be really good from that slot, too, because it's like a true overhead banger of a curveball. Yeah. So um, he's not big but he somehow uses the length he has to his advantage. It's funny. It's some, it's like a double-edged sword to a degree. Cause it's like you, that over the top delivery can result in the fastball, just getting crushed and picked up easily. Sure. But that over the top delivery also makes it really hard to differentiate the changeup. Think of Ian Anderson, right? Like Ian Anderson's fastball got, got hit hard, but that changeup would always play up out of his hand. And you look at the, the movement in a vacuum and it's like, it's not the most devastating pitch, but nobody could d- pick it up when he was going right. And I think yeah, that's a very similar thing with reverse. It's like that over the top, you, you can't pick it up out of the hand and then it just fades. The problem is fastballs seem to be very easy to pick up from that slot. That's the other thing, man. Like turn on any Ian Anderson start in the postseason and tell me that change up isn't nasty. Like I, I think it is the fan perspective and the TV viewer can see that that changeup is nasty. Imagine what mm-hmm. the hitter is feeling from yeah. that slot and that movement. Yeah, it, but it's it, same challenge that Anderson has. I think Roberts is going to face, which is 
can fastball. you dodge? Can you dodge the the, the, the you know below average fastball? And, and unfortunately, the answer for Ian Anderson to this point has been no. Has been no. Yeah, which is which is the tough part. Yeah. We're gonna get into Juan Bin Cho and the top ten in a moment, but before that, a quick break. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, number 10, Juan Bin Chow. And I'm just so happy that I can rank this guy in the top 10 now and it's not like ridiculous. Yeah. Do you remember? I, I think I texted you the moment I saw Juan Bin Chow on the backfields in, in Palm Beach. I'm like, okay, we, I just found the new, like our new favorite player. Because the, for, first of all, he was so raw. I think he was like 17 at the time when I saw him. And now he's j- just turned 20. But <laughs> was on the backfields. He has this just just really fun setup. You obviously can tell that you know he, he, by by the setup that he's not from here, which I was instantly just interested. Like, oh, who is this guy? Like, you know, where did they find him from? Whatever. And I go over there. I watch first swing. It's a line shot straight back up the middle, and he does like he does the classic bat flip that you see so many players in in the Korean league do. And I'm just like, okay, I'm all in on this guy. And it's really funny. He's just it, he's big just blossomed and blossomed and blossomed. He's a big dude. He was a big dude. Even then he's gotten even more full and, and even stronger. Um, and he put up some really good EVs and that's the challenge is, can he translate that into game power? It's been fun to watch him develop from then because at that point I was like, you could almost not find any information on him. He had barely played professionally. I think in any games, it was kind of his first taste of anything on those backfields and, and games that aren't tracked really by, by anybody other than scouts and, and media people with access. So it was one of those things where I'm like, this guy's a mystery. So it was fun to follow and follow the development. And this year in high or low A, excuse me, I feel like was, was a big step forward for him. But at the same time, it's hard to properly assess what the power could look like. Cause he's six, one, 200. He does have impact. He does hit the ball as hard as 110, you know, 110 and a half miles an hour, but it didn't really translate. Was that partly the Florida state league? I think maybe, but I think the other part of it is, is that he puts the ball on the ground a little bit too much. And that's mostly due to the lower half. There's some inconsistencies with the lower half. He'll, he'll kind of drift forward a little bit. He'll get you know on that front foot a little prematurely. And sometimes it just looks like he's a little rushed. It's a slow building leg kick. And sometimes it seems like right at foot strike, the ball's on him a little too quickly. And that's where you can kind of get that drift or like that, that jump out of your base where that compromises the power a little bit. But when he gets into it, it's, it's above average. You could dream on plus. The hit tool is probably going to be fringy at best, but he does seem to put bat on ball enough. He hits fastballs really well. Breaking balls have been giving him a little bit more trouble. He's a young hitter. That's typical. And the approach being good helps a lot. This is a guy that run, ran a chase rate below 20%. So that part really does help. 
He stole 30 bags, was not the most efficient base dealer, probably closer to 10 to 15 at the highest level, and is going to move to a corner full-time, I think, as soon as next year. So Juan Bin Cho has two golden retriever dogs at home, Mm -hmm. which is big. Um, I'm sure you also saw the video of him swinging the cage on New Year's Day or like January 2nd or something like that. Um, He put it out. And I was just looking at him, and, and I love that you mentioned that this is a big dude. He was a big dude when he signed. I just texted you, by the way, a video from 2020 of a 17-year-old Juan Bincho going yard at Globe Life Field. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want you to watch that and give me a reaction because the swing is amazing for a 17-year-old. He's a big 17-year-old. He's filled out now. Like He is a true, big, strong, power bat man at, at what, 20 years old? Yeah, just turned 20. Yeah. Yeah, wow. He does look a lot skinnier there. A um, lot skinnier. I mean, He's like those arms are bigger, man. And it's funny. I almost like some of those moves there a little bit better. And, and I wonder, you know, it's, it's again, you're trying to find it all. You're trying to to simplify things. You're trying to compete against the best competition you've ever seen. And, and sometimes you can kind of get away from what made you who you are to that point, right? What you naturally did. And, and I do wonder with, you know, some adjustments, if Cho maybe gets back to what he was doing here as a 17 year old, obviously applying some of the components that I'm sure are, there's a reason why he's made these adjustments and those components can translate still, but it just felt like he, he doesn't have the same control over the lower half because it's a new feel. It's a little bit different. Maybe he just needs more reps, but I do have a lot of confidence in the Cardinals ability to, and get the most out of their hitters that we've seen a lot of success with adjustments, specifically with the upper minors guys. So now Cho getting up from, from low a there from that environment that is extremely difficult to hit in. This is a guy that I'm very, very eager to see what it looks like in high a and could have some, some exciting, you know, power upside here in this Cardinal system. Number nine, Leonardo Bernal, another catcher who finished the year in low A. It was his second taste of low A. He's 19 years old. Switch hitter. I would say 2023 was a disappointment, though, because he was 18 in low A and played 40-ish games and looked really good and held his own and put up good numbers and defensively looked fine. And then 2023 kind of backs up offensively a little bit I know it was a longer season, you know, at the same level. So maybe it just was some natural regression, still relatively young for the level at 19, but the defense backed up a little bit too. And this happens with young catchers, right? They get bigger, they get thicker. They don't, they don't move quite as it with as much agility as they did before. And then all of a sudden, you know, they don't really know how to manage that because they've really been used to relying on their natural athleticism, their whole you know professional career, really their whole baseball career. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, I, I got to focus on the fundamentals a lot more because I can't move. I can't get away with the same things that I used to get away with. That's what I saw with Bernal. And the the, the defense kind of taking a half step backwards and then also challenges with secondary stuff. This is another guy that crushes fastballs, crushes them, doesn't miss them actually like ever. It's funny. I Of course, most young hitters are going to be better against fastballs than breaking balls. But some of the guys in these Cardinal system, like they have contact rates that are like elite against fastballs and then just brutal numbers against breaking balls. And Bernal is kind of another example of that. Like his swing way better from the left side. I think there's average power at the end of the day to, to dream on, but there's also, I think if, if it all works out average hit to dream on, 
So if he's a fringy defender, average hit, average power, he could end up being an everyday catcher. But it's just really hard to project this guy. At the end of the day, he's still so young that that's what gives him you know, a little bit of the edge over some of the others and checks him in at number nine. So how similar, and, and I know the other one is way more advanced, but how similar is the finished profile offensively to the other catcher from Panama City, Panama in the top <laughs> 10 prospects? I, I think Herrera is just on a different level offensively. Um, so everything is elevated, you think? Power is just way higher. Um, okay. I think the field it hits a lot better too, but maybe Bernal taps into more. It is interesting that they're from the same, the same area. Um, Like defensively, it's similar where it was like, people were kind of wondering what it was going to look like with Herrera and he's improved it enough to be, you know, an average defender, but it is a similar profile, right? Where it's good hit, good power. You're hoping for, I think if it all works out for Bernal and then you're waiting for, for the defense to kind of come along just with, with, we'll get to Herrera. Just the power, the raw power is just on a different level. You were just kind of waiting for it to, to convert to games with Bernal. It's 90th percentile of like 102 and change, which is fine. It's actually slightly above average for his, for his age. I just don't see that much more projection for him. Yeah. Number eight friend of the program. Definitely check out the episode. He was a, a really fun interview. Gordon Graceffo, uh, Fifth round pick in 2021. Cool story as well as a guy that you know, had an okay first couple of years at Villanova and then really burst onto the scene his junior year. Wasn't sure if he was going to get drafted high enough or not. So he goes to the Cape, has a few starts on the Cape where he dominates as well and ends up getting picked in the fifth round. His stuff ticked up big time. He talked about that in the episode uh, about how he made some adjustments to his mechanics to be working downhill, to be working, getting his body kind of just working towards home plate. And that resulted in his fastball ticking up to the mid nineties from like 91, 92. He was more 94, 96, even touching a hundred at times. That was important for Graceffo because the shape is, is not great. It's, it's not going to have a ton of carry. It's a very stock, you know, release and, and shape overall. So to have that uptick in velocity, that that helps a ton, right? You're always trying to get away from, you know, the status quo with these fastballs. Then it also helps his slider because I think everything tunnels out, out of his hand really well. And that's a big reason why everything plays up. Slider in a vacuum is probably an above average pitch, but I think it plays as a plus pitch off of his fastball and the way that he's able to create that deception. Curveball flashes average or slightly above. And then the changeup is you know, kind of just this mix in taste breaker pitch, but Six four two ten. I think he can get back. He dealt with a little bit of shoulder discomfort at, at points last year, so the velocity didn't didn't I think sustain where where we're used to it. But then it came back at the end of the year. I, I think this this is just another high probability back end starter who's been able to you know eat up plenty of innings and you know has at least one pitch that can he can really lean on and, and get outs with. And the fastball is better than some of the other you know lower ceiling, higher forearms that we've talked about. Do you remember when you put out the 2023 top 100 prospects and the first comment was Gordon Graceffo and that was it? Oh yeah. God about that. Was he like 101? I assume he was. Um, he had a great year in 22, 23. Obviously the numbers look like nowhere near as good. And the ERA was I closer to double than like just up to, it went from what two nine seven to four nine two. He spent the entire year in triple a. My question isn't like, all right, the hits piled up and, and the runs piled up. 
my question is, you know, what happened to not just the command, but the overall control? Like the walk rate went up drastically. And yeah. I, I don't know if it was a nibbling thing. He only threw 86 innings. Like maybe he was dealing with, you know, something physically. I, I'm not sure. So I think part of it might have been coming back from that shoulder issue. He talked about on the episode how it's really the first time he's ever really dealt with any sort of ailment. And it was just shoulder discomfort, right? Nothing, nothing major, anything like that. But he had to shut down and then work back. And he just said it was eye opening. You know, it's just the first time that he's really dealt with with anything since he started college. So I think that might have been part of it. Never really having that kind of layoff before. Also, just trying to find that slot again consistently when you deal with a shoulder thing is is weird. You don't realize you know, how much you're naturally or subconsciously kind of changing the slot to, to protect your arm. And and then you almost still do that when you come back. The other side of it is, you know, how much you think the ABS may have played in. Uh, that's always something I wonder in AAA when I see guys that typically have good command and Graceffo's always had good command, you know, hit a little bit of a wall in that, in that department. I do wonder if some of that was you know, the ABS combined with, you know, coming off of a, a layoff and some, some shoulder discomfort. What, what do you think with being a guy that saw AAA kind of up close and personal pretty consistently? Do you think the ABS makes that much of a difference for these guys? It does. I, I do think it does. Um, did I think it was going to double his walk rate? Like, not, no, no it shouldn't. Um, but obviously, like the shoulder issue there, you know, mounted with the ABS certainly does play a factor. And I think that overall hits are going to go up with that. Like, it's not independent to just walks it's not independent to just like balls and strikes it is okay you're missing the corners just barely you you try and muscle up and you know like blow it by somebody because hey if i'm not going to get the corner then i i just have to beat them within the strike zone and all of a sudden that turns into middle middle and it's bombs away for guys yeah Yeah, that makes sense and and that's i mean graceffo is a guy that likes to get the chase with the slider and, and and fastballs at the top of the zone Number seven is a guy that probably grew on me as much as anybody that I looked at in the system as, as I got to watch more of his starts, and it's Cooper Jerpy. Uh, I know you've liked Jerpy since college where he was one of the more consistent arms that we had seen you know, in, in the college ranks and 22nd overall pick in 2022. The Cardinals drafted this guy with the, the plan of him being a fast-trackable guy that could get to the big leagues you know, soon and, and help them soon. He can still be that guy, but injuries, an injury kind of derailed that timeline a bit. He had a loose body in his elbow, which was ultimately great news when you're dealing with elbow soreness. It wasn't you know, any structural issue. It was just a loose body. They removed that. He had the four-month layoff. And funny enough, you know, not funny, but ironically, Cooper Jerby also said something very similar where it was like, I've never really gone that long without pitching. It was weird to come back from that because he was another guy that came back and all of a sudden the walk rate's kind of high and we're like, whoa. You know what's going on there, and I just think it was him, especially a guy like him with such a funky release, shaking off trying the to get back to it and, and, and find it again. It is a ridiculous release, by the way. It's a four foot three release, yeah. three feet out there, so it looks like it's coming from first base. And even though the velocity was slightly down, and I do think that was from the procedure, I think it'll probably come back a little bit higher. He was more 91, 92 in college, he was more 88, 89, 90 uh, this past year, but. It didn't even matter, even at 88, 89. The amount of in-zone whiff this guy was generating was insane on all of his pitches. Fastball, a ton of in-zone whiff. I mean, it was 28%. That was like 10% above his league average. Change-up, above average. Slider looks like an average pitch. Cutter looks like a, a, a potentially an average pitch. 
And then those all just play up from that release point. And assuming that he can regain that command, I think he can be a solid number four starter. Um, but I mean, it's just fun to watch this guy throw and the, the amount of whiff that he's able to generate because of the way that everything tunnels off of his, you know, his funky release is really cool. And the way that the arsenal can be utilized, you generally want to see a sweeper harder than 75. And it, it's, it's a, a super sweeper type of break, right. but because of how far out he releases it and how much sweep it, it features, it just becomes a nightmare for, for hitters. If you're a lefty, it looks like it's coming behind you and righties. I watched him just, backdoor them so often because it looks like it's in the other batter's box. These guys are giving up on it, almost adjusting their batting gloves, getting ready to, to step back in for their next pitch. And it comes back in and it's, it's strike two. And they look almost, almost shell shocked. So that helps him a ton. He's able to get left on left with that. He's able to steal strikes with righties. And then the changeup helps him obviously against righties. So he has an arsenal that's already really good for turning lineups over. And then the fastball just, it's so deceptive that it can kind of get him out of a lot of hitters counts. It's really about the command here for Jerpy, and I think he's got a really good chance of being a four. Worst case scenario, he's a good reliever that's going to have plenty of funk and, and be able to give you multi innings for sure. Um, he is, and I think you made this comp in the write up. Like it's it's Sale esque, and mm-hmm. Chris Sale when he was on that stretch of the White Sox was the most unhittable dude in Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you there were left-handed hitters that were walking back and saying, this at bat was hell on earth. I never want mm-hmm. to experience something like that. And to obviously a much lesser degree, Sale was you know historic with how good he was. To a much lesser degree, I think left-handed hitters are always going to walk back from a Cooper Jerpy at bat saying that. Like, that was miserable. Yeah. And right-handers, if he's locating that sweeper effectively, are going to do the same exact thing. Or if the change-up's on, they're going to do the same exact thing. It's so weird. And my thing, like, why I latched on is it's so weird, yet he was filling up the strike zone. And weird dudes never fill up the strike zone with multiple pitches. Yeah. If he's healthy, I assume he's going to fill up the strike zone again. And, and it's just weird, man. I think he is the elevated version from that Miami kid in Colorado, and I'm blanking on his name. Oh, 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 Carson Palmquist. Carson Palmquist. He's the elevated version of Carson Palmquist. I I, I agree. And and the other thing that's really interesting is from such a low release, he gets above average extension. So that ball, even if it's 88, 89, I think it needs to be 99, 90, 91 to to reach that like number four ceiling or or a little bit better than that. But to get that kind of extension, it's going to play up as well. Last thing is I love the cutter because even though it's a fringy pitch or an average pitch at best, it gives him that a third speed, especially left on left, where, you know, if you see 88, you're going to see 88 and then 75. It's kind of easier to pick it up when it's that big of a discrepancy and, and spin versus, you know, straight or fastball. So to have that third speed now, guys may not know if it's that harder cutter or more of that sweepier slider. And, and it just helps everything there. So he's just got a really well-designed arsenal to, to get the most out of what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Number six. Chase Davis, the first round pick in the 2023 draft, also a Bowman draft guy that should be a popular chase. Uh, No pun intended there. That was brutal. Uh, He's got a lot of power and he was a very, 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 very popular analytics pick. Right. Like, and I hate just labeling a guy like an analytics pick because all the analytics guys love him. (laughs) Every, every pick's an analytics pick, but in terms of, 
everybody that I know or that I follow or that I've just monitor on, you know, Twitter or, or everyone's work that I'm on, it's, all of it's the people that now. are the most extremely analytically driven were outrageously high on Chase Davis. He, he's a batted ball darling. He really broke out his junior season at Arizona. And it was just funny. It's just everybody that was very, very, very driven with, with certain you know, underlying data thresholds. Davis checked whatever those boxes were. And I mean, we saw him, I think he was on baseball prospectuses, like top 60 or whatever number they they ranked by. Yeah. Immediately after the draft, which is like, look, I, I don't, I could see why, because you can see what the offensive upside is, but that just shows you how wide the, the ranges are here, right? This is a guy that went 21. It's a guy that's number six in the, in a, in a weaker system but some have him that I really respect some really great opinions out there, have him as high as a top 60 prospect in the sport. That was before he struggled in low a. And I always thought that was slightly aggressive, but it just shows you that very sound minds think that this guy is that good. So it shows you what he can be. That said, that's also why he's a great Bowman draft acquisition because I do subscribe to the belief that he can be that guy. Like I do understand that perspective. I just think that, there's players that are better than that, that have a little bit more of a track record of hitting that I'm going to put probably ahead of him. Davis, hits the ball hard. And and that's why I think a lot of these folks just fell in love with him because it's not only does he hit it hard, he was elevating consistently and especially to the pull side, the numbers at Arizona were insane. What do you hit? 360. Yeah. With with, what was it? 27 bombs, 21, 74 driven in. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. Uh, he struggled in low A. So here's my thing to you. If you pulled a Chase Davis card, are you holding it because you think that people might be a little bit lower on him after the struggling in low A? Or do you think that there's still that remnants of like, oh, this guy is, you know, one of the more popular, you know, picks of the draft, one of the favorite bats of a lot of people. Uh, maybe he's somebody that is worth dumping now because it might only get worse. <laughs> Uh, I'm selling not because I think it might only get worse. I'm selling because there is a hive of people that's going to pay a pretty penny for it. Yeah. Well, do you remember when we did the mock draft and I, yeah. we were identifying underslot candidates and I, I Chase identified Davis. Chase Davis as my top five pick underslot candidate because of how many people I respect saying this guy could be one of the top college bats in the draft. And any player that has that wide a range of, of opinions is like the perfect underslot candidate. So right. he ultimately is not a guy that gets underslotted and he struggles in low A. I was surprised. I thought he'd get a sign straight to high A. It seems like it's probably a good thing that he didn't now. He's going to be in high A this coming year, but it, it's a swing that looks just like cargo. It's exactly like cargo, yeah. which is really aesthetically pleasing. He can run into exit velocities as high as 110 miles an hour. I think he's put up 111, 112 but I just, I don't know why it didn't look better in low A. Like, I watch a lot of at bats that he hit the ball pretty well. I thought he dealt with some bad batted ball. Look, maybe it was, you know, it was a little bit gassed at the end of the year. It was a long season. It's the first time these guys are playing this many games. Right. I honestly think Chase Davis is going to bounce back in a big way. Even if the hit tool is fringy, the amount of power that he can tap into in games from the left side, I think he can be a fine defender in left or right should be enough to make him, you know, a solid corner outfielder. He so he played 34 low A games. He had no homers in 57 college games. He had 21. 
that number doesn't go from 21 to zero unless that guy is exhausted. And I think he was exhausted. Give him an off season. I think he's going to come out and hit the crap out of the ball. Now, yeah, to deflect it, some, yeah. no, to deflect some of the blame from the analytics guys, uh, <laughs> throw your toothpick in the college stats matter crowd. And I'm the president of that crowd is saying like, I would be high on this cat too. He walked more than he struck out. He hit 21 homers and he had a 1230 OPS in the pack 12. Like these numbers are great on the yeah. stat sheet and the underlying data. Underlying data just confirms what you see on the stat sheet. Yeah. There might be two guys in major league baseball on a given basis that are like, Oh, well the underlying data is really good. I'll tell you who the two were: Eduardo Rodriguez and Aaron Nola. Yeah. And Aaron Nola just put up a four and a half ERA. Like, when are we going to stop with this? So y- you have to know that the quote unquote analytics guys are typically just confirming what you see on a day to day basis. Nola also went nuts in the postseason. So like, you, you see it come out. But the, I think the big thing that the big things that like Davis checked off was hits the ball hard, made a huge leap in the bat to ball department, cuts the chase down. So he's a low chase guy as well, walking a ton. And he, and he elevates. You do all those things, you have a really good chance at being an extremely productive power hitter. And that's what people see. And that's what I see. I think the big cargo move for him sometimes, though, can be a little too much. And, and sometimes I think the timing can get inconsistent. And I think that's what threw him off a little bit professionally. But even when you look at those 34 games, the EVs were still solid. Uh, the, you know, Not as good with metal. So maybe, again, you, you factor in fatigue, then the EVs were still above average. Chase was still low and the contact rates were, were fine. So I do think he's going to have a nice year. And I, and I do think he's going to have a, a, a pretty productive 2024. Yeah. Into the top five here. Number five, Tink Hintz. Some may be surprised at where he's at now. Um, I, I mean, this is still a good spot to be and, and really might be indicative of, of where he's going to be in the updated top 100 and, and things like that. But look, it, it was an interesting year for Tim Kent. So it was, it was, it was a unique one because it was encouraging from the respect that he was stretched out more than ever, despite and you know, overcame some, some ailments and injuries, but that part almost makes it, you know, hedges some of that, <laughs> that promising aspect of it. But it was, it was frustrating because I felt like he was in low a for too long. And, and I'm not saying that that's why he struggled this year, but in 2022, he was in low A. And you look at the pitch usage in low A, he was throwing fastball 70% of the time, saying, here it is, try and hit it. No one could hit it. It's a mid-90s fastball from a 5-3 release point, as you can see here. He really gets down, and he drops, and he drives. And that ball, when it's at the top of the zone, is a big whiff pitch. The problem is, threw his fastball 70% of the time in low A, spent all of 2022 in low A. So then 2023, goes to high A and double A, and – the priority was, okay, let's mix in the secondaries more. These are better hitters. Cuts the fastball usage down to 55%. And all of a sudden, the changeup command just isn't there. Uh, the, the breaking ball is inconsistent. And it's like, well, yeah, he didn't really throw him that much in 2022. Uh, I also think part of it, you know, apparently he was dealing with a little bit of a finger ailment. And like that, you know, that, that could easily have affected the changeup and, and the breaking ball. But to, ha- to have the struggles that he had command wise, um, that's a little concerning. And then just to, 
to have some of the ailments that he had you know, flare up as he gets stretched out. That's a little concerning, but it was good to see him maintain the same velocity. Fastball velocity average almost the same to the decimal, like 95.6 or 95.8, despite throwing way more pitches than he ever had. He had not eclipsed 60 pitches once in 2022, and he eclipsed, eclipsed 60 pitches 17 times in 2023. So that part is is encouraging. Were was the prospect community too quick to anoint him the future of like the Cardinals prospect? I the future of the yes. Cardinals farm system, like very yeah. much too quick. Yes, and I think I'm a little guilty of that too. Um, I I don't know why I didn't. I mean, the fastball usage like, was a little telling. But the thing is, that, you know, you'd see the, the the data, though, on the changeup and the data on the breaking ball. And you're like, whoa, that looks yeah, good. But, but, but there's but nothing you can, of the time. That's the thing. Like, there was just there was nothing you could do about that. You didn't have an example of bad usage of anything because he was throwing two three inning spurts in low A against players that he was just better than. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you got to. Right. Like you, you just got to wait till these guys are tested. And and by tested, I mean either seeing competition that is at their level, which you saw in double A, or you see if they can sustain that velocity into the sixth inning. And we learned that he can sustain the velocity. We learned that he can keep that. But he met hitters that are his match. Now, those hitters happen to be five years older than him, four years older than him. But yeah. you're seeing 32 year olds in the big leagues. Like that's the thing with me. Like when, when the prospect community latches on to a Sebastian Walcott so quickly, <laughs> yeah. he's better than everybody else. Tink yeah. Hansen, low A, he's better than everybody else. Let's see him when he gets to a place where he's comparable to others. I think this is a huge year for him. You know, yeah. and again, like if he has a bad year, he's not cooked. He'll be 22 the next year and he has plenty of time. But this is a really big year to, you know, kind of see where which direction he's going. And again, I, I hope that. It was more of just the kind of ailments he was dealing with. But when you land your, your changeup for a strike 49% of the time, and that's your best secondary pitch potentially, that's a problem. Uh, the, the ironic thing is when it was anywhere near the zone, it was devastating. In zone whiff rate of 53%, Jack. Tw- swinging strike rate of 25%. When he gives the pitch a chance, it can be plus. It's devastating. But he never gave it a chance. So th- that part of it is just is just really was really frustrating. But it could be as simple as a, as a mechanical adjustment. And I saw like multiple starts where he's very quick with his windup, right? It's and we were talking about this before. Like it's very like I would just say rushed at times. But some guys are very fine with that. McGreevy is kind of a rush delivery. But it seemed like for him, his body gets ahead of his arm. And when his body's getting ahead of his arm, his arm's kind of lagging. And you saw so many arm side misses. But not only arm side misses, it just kind of looks like the ball just. You know, we talk about flat VAA and, and the ball just kind of jumping out of his hand and, and, and hence is a guy that really benefits from that. But it just kind of seemed like the ball was was not jumping the same way when the arm was lagging. And the same thing is you think the arm's lagging, it's going to affect the changeups too. And he missed so many times arm side with the changeup. Curveball has not been as good. Now it's the slider that really looks like the better pitch. And that looks like it could be a, a good third pitch. But you got to land it for a strike. It's really all comes down to the change up and, and can he regain that feel? Because it, in a nutshell, the pitch can be really good. We're talking about the over the top thing. Like it's a low release. It's over the top though. And it will play really well off for the fastball, but he's got to be able to throw it for a strike more than 49% of the time. 
I want to make this clear. There is a difference between rushed and quick when it comes to a delivery and quick can still have rhythm. Rushed is when you get out of a rhythmic delivery. Pitching is rhythm. That's what like a wind up is. That's what the stretch Mm -hmm. is. And like a slide step, you know, you learn this when you're 12 years old, the slide step is to disrupt base runners rhythm and disrupt hitters rhythm. So Tink Hentz gets into a a point where it's so quick that it, it becomes rushed um, and like, then you lose all the rhythm, like Graceffo mm-hmm. or sorry, McGreevy, like McGreevy's quick, but he keeps the rhythm. Uh, Carson Fulmer was quick at Vandy and he kept the rhythm. That's kind of like the guy when it comes to a quick delivery. But when he got to the minor leagues and he started to get tired at the end of the year, that quick became rushed and like his arm wasn't ready to keep up with his body. And in turn, like that throws the rhythm off. It just feels like there are some starts where he's lacked the rhythm. That's exactly. And especially when the fatigue set in at the end of the year, which is interesting. So the first 17 starts of the year, fastball average 96.3 miles per hour, strike rate of 63%. Changeup was landed for a strike 55% of the time, which isn't good enough, but it's it's much better. Final eight starts of the season. Fastball drops to 94.7 miles per hour, changeup strike rate of 34%. He's throwing tired. Um, and so maybe, you know, that's part of it too, I, but that also is something that I'm, you know, worried about, you know, maybe he didn't handle the workload as, as well as, as we thought. So there's a lot of things. I, this is just a player that I feel like no matter where I put him going into this next year, it's going to be wrong. Um, and, and in this case, I hope that I'm too low and I hope that he just dominates and uh, becomes one of the better young pitching prospects in the game again, but it just felt weird for me to put him over TK Roby who you know, is number four. Um, Takoa Roby is, I just think, an elevated version, you know, in terms of just what you're going to get here, which is above average fastball that I actually think plays better right now uh, than hence is um, mostly because Roby commands it better. But also I do think that the the shape is is pretty good. It's not as much about the carry. It's more about the fact that he has a very flat vertical attack angle and he throws, you know, 94 to 96 gets decent extension and just seems to get on hitters pretty quickly. I think another reason why his fastball plays so well is that he has a downer curveball that tunnels off of it incredibly well. If you're watching on YouTube, there's a disgusting curveball that he's throwing that I think that looks like Tim Tawa, uh, but he's absolutely devastating falls right off the table. Like that curveball fastball combination is, is really, really good. It's big league he needs to find the, the secondaries too, right? The slider has flashed average. The changeup has flashed average. Both of those pitches were not consistently in the zone at all uh, this past year, but the fastball and curveball alone could make him a multi-inning reliever swing man. I think he's a, a, could be a number three starter, probably somewhere closer to a number four starter. Cause I do have some concern about really finding that third pitch and, and consistency with the command that curveball breaks so much that he almost struggles to land a first strike you know, as much as he should. Oh, by the way, acquired in the Jordan Montgomery trade at the deadline. Yes. Um, injuries also hold him back a little bit. Like if it weren't for repetitive injuries, I'd probably have him, you know, in the top 100 and probably closer to the two or three range in this top prospect list. But recurrent injuries, kind of a step backwards command wise. And then, you know, just a little bit of a, a rougher finish to the year. Has him just just outside of the top 100, I think, and just behind the the, the three hitters we're going to get into in a moment. He's got long arms for six one. 
like that dude is snapping off that breaking ball. If you're watching on YouTube and the GIF and the article, it is like that's truly like I'm getting the most out of my arm right now. And I'm generating as much whip as possible to make that thing like just biting. And that curveball is truly biting. And a fastball curveball combination from that can work, man. And like I, I think we've seen a lot of outings where that guy has both pitches on. And that is huge. If you don't have those on, like, hey, you know, maybe they get away from you and, and you become like just a fastball and like maybe a changeup guy. But I, if that fastball and curveball is working, there's not much that especially right-handed hitters can do against you. And, and it's a hammer. And, yes. and, that, and it's such a hammer that it works against the lefties too. And then the slider has flashed. Like, I, I do think that that can be a pitch. And the changeup, again, is flashed. If those pitches come along the way, I think they can, then you, you get a number three starter here. But that is yeah. a big if because – you have the injuries and then coming off of after the trade, I think while he was traded, he was dealing with some arm discomfort, comes back in August, end of August, hadn't thrown since early June. And they were very careful with him. It was just three inning spurts, three inning spurts, three inning spurts. So it's hard to assess the fastball velocity because they, they were being very careful with him. He wasn't throwing more than 40, 50 pitches. Regardless, this was a really good get. I think the Rangers kind of messed up by trading both Roby and Sajazi. I wonder if they ha- could have a do-over if they would have tried to move Foscue or or somebody else. But maybe the Cardinals were so on it that these were the two guys that they wanted in a Montgomery trade. But regardless, if, if Roby can stay healthy and develop one of those two secondaries, I think he's got a really good chance of sticking as at least a number four starter. Uh, it's, but you know, I do think there's number three upside. It's also hard to say they regret it when they did win it all. Montgomery was such yeah, a big of course, piece of course. that. It's like anything's worth it. The Cubs yeah. traded labor Torres for a, for a rental of Araldis Chapman, but it was worth it because they won. Yeah, no, I guess regret would be the wrong word, but I wonder if they would love to swap some of the guys that they moved instead, right. um, if you could have a do over there. But yeah, you, you do it every day of the week. Montgomery was a huge part of that World Series title. Number three. A guy that I think has become one of the more underrated prospects in baseball, Yvonne Herrera. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be surprised that Herrera is ranked ahead of Roby and Hence and whatever. And the guy hits the crap out of the ball. I did a thread on his swing changes that he made. And this was the classic, similar to Jordan Walker. They love their Memphis staff. They love their hitting, you know, their hitting development in, in terms of their, their hitting coaches there and the way that they communicate with the big league team. And so that's why Walker went there, made some adjustments. That's another piece that you can check out at JustBaseball.com. I wrote a few months back diving into what made, you know, Walker really go off in the, the end of the season. And with Yvonne Herrera, I, I talked about this in, in the write-up, but also have a thread on Twitter or X about this as well. He was a guy that would get very spinny. He would often get on his front foot too quickly and he would cut himself off. So he made some changes. They're very dramatic, but it works for him. It's, it's a feel that he really wants to have to stay back. And the changes that he made have really helped him engage his back hip, stay back, and have a bat path that enters his zone earlier and is geared for more lift because he was somebody that you know did struggle with putting the ball on the ground too much. He still does, but he cut the ground ball rate down a fair amount after making these changes. He hits the ball really hard, like really, really, really hard. We've seen exit velocities as high as 111 miles an hour. Um, and, and the craziest thing is he, I think with the changes, not only tapped into more power, but also tapped into, I think, better bats of ball skills. And of course, was able to generate more loft. You look at the, the data, his 90th percentile exit velocity jumped from 103 miles an hour to 2020, in 2022 to 107 miles per hour in 2023 while he cut his ground ball rate by 7% and doubled his home run to fly ball rate. So essentially hit the ball harder, 
hit the ball in the air more. And then when he did hit the ball in the air, it left the yard more frequently. I mean, what else do you want to see from a hitter? I know that he's a catcher and ultimately his glove is going to be average at best. And that does limit him some, but when you have an average or slightly above average field to hit this kind of power and an extremely patient approach, dude, this is, this is a, a shoe in top 100 prospect for me and a top three prospect in the system. Is he in the lineup on opening day? God, I don't know. I don't know with the, with the, I don't know what the Cardinals man like. I don't understand what they're doing. He's so, hit when they bring him up to the big leagues. He crushed baseballs in Triple A. I understand he might be a little limited defensively, and Contreras is probably a better option just considering that he's a vet. And if you're, they're both right. going to kind of be fringy defensively. Go with the vet, but move this guy. Then I, I don't know. I don't know. Do something. He's big league ready now. He is. Um, I just I wonder how much run he's going to get. I think he's on the opening day roster. I think he's on the big league roster the entirety of the year, assuming full health. I just wonder, like, how many opportunities he's going to get. Wilson Contreras is going to be the opening day catcher, I do think. Your DH options right now are like, you know, a Gorman if you want Donovan at second or a Donovan um, I would rather see Gorman or Donovan DH than Herrera on opening day. But like Herrera is going to be on a bench with Alec Burleson and Dylan Carlson. All three of those guys should be getting like at least platoon reps at the major league level. And they may not get them with the Cardinals like that offense is good um, with Herrera. I, I just think this should force the Cardinals to DH Wilson more often. Like I know that they punished him by putting him in that DH role, but Man, I mean, he's going to be 32 in April or May. Yeah, Like, get him off his feet a little bit. Have Wilson catch four days a week, DH2, sit one. Have Herrera catch three days a week, and I think that's what they will do. Yep. You know, it's crazy. And and I, I hope they do because, I mean, he's the long – I think he's the long-term answer. And I think it's part of the reason why they haven't moved him. Right? Like, that, this was a guy that they – I'm sure teams were interested in. They they just have not wanted to move him. Yeah. but. The, the fascinating thing about how much more power he's tapped into also new max was 113.3 last yeah. year by making these adjustments and he topped his previous max exit velocity. So think about this in 2022, his max exit velocity was 111 miles an hour. He topped that seven times in 2023. Damn. So not only do you post a new max, you know, I don't like one-off max at EVs. I, I mentioned it just to show you like what somebody's capable of, but I don't really factor it in too much. Uh, when you top your max seven times, you got my attention. He produced twice as many batted balls above 105 miles per hour in 15 less games in 2023. This guy unlocked way more power, and it didn't come at the expense of the hit. If anything, the hit came along too. Sub 20% chase rate, sign me up. And I think that common thinking will tell you a guy increases their max exit velocity by just getting stronger. I think Herrera is a good case of optimizing your swing to increase your Mm -hmm. max exit velocity instead of just getting stronger. A hundred percent. And he did that. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll link the thread in the episode description so you can check that out. Um, I have pictures and videos and explaining everything mechanically as to what he did uh, to be able to tap into more juice. I can't learn without pictures and videos. So that's great. Perfect. I, I, I figure a lot of people are that way. I am too. So I, I hope people enjoy that. Number two, Thomas Sejazi. And I, mean, I love this swing that you know people could be seeing on YouTube right now. Uh, acquired in the Jmont deal. 
look, I was a little skeptical of like if how it would all come together for Jay Z. Uh, very aggressive and you know, younger guy, uh, a little bit more defensively limited, but hedges that with versatility. And then he just kept hitting, and then he just kept hitting, and then he just kept hitting, and then the underlying data kept looking better and better and better and better. And talk about another guy above average hit, above average raw power. And lifts. I mean, he hits the ball in the air consistently. I think it's one of the more efficient and effective swings, too, because it's short, compact, and usually that coincides with flat. In this instance, with with Sajazi, it's short, compact, and lofty. Like it still creates, you know, lift and backspin. And as a result, we got a lot of home runs last year. We got a lot of extra base hits, and he still makes plenty of contact. He toes the line of, you know, generating lift and consistently making contact extremely well, which is very hard to do and usually just comes naturally for hitters. And that's exactly what Sajazi can do. Decent runner. And again, able to play second, third, short, and an absolute pinch. I just really believe in the bat. This guy got to triple eight, 21 years old. And after the trade, when just went absolutely nuts. He is, uh, he's an interesting one. I'd say because like, when you when you watch him play, you don't think, oh, this is the number two prospect in a system. But that kind of speaks to, I guess, the lower floor of the Cardinals, but also like just how good Sajazi is at the boring stuff. And the boring stuff is singles and doubles. And that's what he does so ridiculously well. And it, I don't know, he, he almost leapfrogged the guy that the Rangers might have <laughs> viewed as like the older and closer version of him in Foscu. Yeah, I think he's better. I, I mean, because you're, you're getting a, con, a zone contact rate at around 84%, which got better and better as the year went on, by the way. I mean, yeah. if you take a sample of the last like 60 games, it's more of like an 87% zone contact rate. And then beyond that, you, you got exit velocities that are pretty much average. And then yeah. a ground ball rate of just 37%. So you talk about the singles and doubles and the ability to just spray the ball and, and put the ball in play. But you also got 26 homers here because the guy creates loft to the pull side. So you got above average pull side pop. You got above average hit tool. He's too aggressive at times. And that's the one thing that I want to see him, you know, cut down on the chase rate a little bit. But, you know, it's in a manageable zone. It's in that buffer zone of like 30, 32%. Right. So a lot of all offerings well, too. So a lot of people are over aggressive in video games. And what he did after the trade honestly looked like somebody playing a video game. Exactly. Like like how are you going to tell that guy to swing last? How, how do you tell that guy to swing last? Right. And like, you know, I'm not saying, oh, video game numbers. I think video game numbers are, are constantly like plastered everywhere. Like if somebody has a 50 point game in the NBA, that those are video game numbers. With Sajazi, it was literally a video game because he was swinging at everything and he was hitting everything for base hits. And it was multiple cycles, right? Yeah. At least one. I don't know. At he, least one. If he had a 14 game stretch right after the trade, where he hit or like not not too long after the trade where he hit 411 452 786 23 hits and 56 at bats five home runs i mean like that's yeah, just outrageous he he went nuts um and and it was one of the best stretches anyone had in the minors last year and, and in a while so i think you have the potential for 20 home runs you have the potential to hit for a decent average mix in some stolen bases play all over the diamond and hit a lot of doubles and i just i love the swing I love the way he he plays the game. He's hard nosed. He's a grinder, and uh, not the sexiest number two prospect in a system. But I feel really good about his chances of being able to help the Cardinals. Um, you know, I think within the next year if they need him, but we'll see if they can find a spot for him. Yeah. Number one recent guest of the show, definitely go check out that interview. It was Victor Scott the second? 
he is awesome. I, one of my favorite interviews that we had in, in a while, but one of my favorite guys that we were able to go watch in the Arizona Fall League. It's 80 speed. Guy stole 94 bags this past year. If you add the Arizona Fall League, over 100. A plus hit tool, though, to go with that is what really stands out to me. I did not think that he would be this good of a hitter. He made some adjustments after the first month of the season. And after making those adjustments, he really wanted to simplify things. So rest instead of having his hands out in front of him, kind of resting the bat more on the shoulder, almost no leg kick, weights kind of already stacked in the back leg. It's just a small weight transfer and swing. He's twitchy enough to generate gap-to-gap power like that, but it allowed him to make way more contact. He breaks it down extremely well, both in the live breakdown on our YouTube, which you should check out where he breaks down a bunch of ABs, and also the episode which is two separate videos, the episode where he talks about some of the, the adjustments he made. But from the point that he made the swing adjustment, I watched you know every game and then wanted to start from when he made the swing adjustment onward, 90% zone contact after making that change. So, and, and a huge sample. Just what also stood out to me is I watched him hit a home run, 107 pole side uh, in Arizona. And I'm like, okay, he can get into enough on his pole side. This is a home run for those that are watching on YouTube. So you have 80 speed, the, the potential to lead the league in stolen bases. You have plus to potentially plus plus defense in center field. You have a plus hit tool. You have enough power gap to gap power and you have elite makeup, such a high probability big leaguer and, and such a high probability, even table setter that, I mean, this guy, not only is he going to be one of the bigger climbers in our top 100, he's the number one prospect in the system. When you graduate Mason win. Yeah. Um, He's got game-changing speed in a way that like nobody else in the minor leagues has. I guess Chandler Simpson, but Scott's a better offensive player, and he's just a better on-base threat than Chandler Simpson with Tampa. And you know, they're, you know they're best friends. Oh, I'm sure. Like that, that had to be some sort of internal competition. If they're, both they're guys best are friends. with ninety, right? They're, I love. They that. had a yeah. They had a competition. They texted back and forth. He talked about that on the show, which I thought was so funny. Um, but what are the odds your your best friend also can steal ninety bags? Right, but like. That is truly game-changing speed. And we opened this episode talking about the Cubs and uh, with the number one prospect, I'm going to mention the Reds, but I know we talked about this on the Just Baseball show when Ellie De La Cruz was doing his thing on the base pass. I mentioned the concept of Billy runs, like Billy Hamilton would create a run for himself. He would walk or hit a single, steal second, steal third, and then he would somehow make his way home on like a play where he has no business scoring. Um, and Ellie runs were a thing this year. And, and it feels like Victor Scott can tap into the Billy run type thing. But the beauty of Victor Scott is while he may not be as record breaking fast as Billy Hamilton, he's got way more gap to gap pop than Billy Hamilton ever did. And I think he might be just a better hitter period. Yeah. You know, like that swing is good. It's simple. It's it's, and he's got a good approach. Uh, and that on top of it, I mean, most of these guys that are this type, like they just want to spray the ball, just put the bat on ball. They swing at everything and they put it straight on the ground. He he's does trying so to do much something. more than that. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's trying to do something early in the count. And again, like it was really eye opening doing the live breakdown where you can see like what he's trying to do. He could, he could be a little bit better at driving the ball the other way, but he's gotten better and better at that. Uh, but even then, like he could chop it into the ground and steal a hit, but he doesn't try to do that. He has that in his bag, but you know, it's enough juice to sneak out maybe 10 home runs. And then also, Plenty of doubles in the gap. Plenty he could lead the league in triples if it all comes together. But the plus hit tool was the, the differentiator for me. And then the defensive ability in center field is just awesome. Um, and then I think he could steal 100 bags in a full big league season. So this is a guy that I think is going to become a fan favorite very quickly and uh, is a really, really 
dynamic and fun player. So top prospect in the Cardinal system and will be in that, that top 100 update for us coming relatively soon. Definitely go check out that interview with Victor Scott. I know you will enjoy it, especially if you're a Cardinals fan, but if you're a baseball fan, period, just cool to get into the mind of Victor Scott and him walking us through the stolen base routine was also very cool. That's it for the Cardinals episode. We will do another farm system next week, probably another central one pirates. Maybe we'll, we'll we'll figure that out soon. Continue to fly through these each week. Uh, And as always, please, if you could leave a rating, help us grow the show, we'd really appreciate it. Subscribe to us on YouTube and check out all of the content we're putting out on JustBaseball.com, where we are just churning out these write-ups, but also MLB stuff, keeping you briefed on the offseason, everything that's going on. We have a phenomenal staff of writers doing great stuff throughout this offseason, getting you primed for 2024 season. So always thank you for us. Oh, you have one more thing, Jack? Guess who the newest Tampa Bay Ray is? I saw. I actually just saw that. I saw that. Uwasawa. Nayuki Uwasawa. Hey, look, they're making me look good now because I was I was pumped up on that guy and you know one of the more uh, analytically driven forward thinking uh, uh, pitching departments there. Go identify Uwasawa. So those darn analytics guys. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. I think he's going to be great for them, and I think it was the perfect landing spot for him. So it should be fun to see how he develops there and gives them some much needed depth. I don't, I know it's a minor league deal, which is crazy, but I think he's going to make the team or at least get up there pretty quickly. That'll do it for this episode. Look forward to talking prospects with you next week. Have a great weekend. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.